The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Burning Man Project. Common side effects include moderate to severe confusion, partial enlightenment, utopianism, surrealism, situationism, and wild-eyed enthusiasm. If you have frequent thoughts of a transformative nature, you should continue listening immediately. Ask your life coach if you are spiritually healthy enough for this podcast. You are listening to the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat. Existential psychologist Kirk Schneider says that the experience that most makes us human is that of paradox, that we simultaneously experience ourselves as powerful and weak, knowing and ignorant, alive and constantly on the edge of death. Our humanity, human nature as we know it, comes from the living and embodied experience of these paradoxes. But our digital avatars and AI are standardized and certain where we are conflicted and struggling. The machines we have built to create enormous material prosperity are designed to replace our lived experience of paradox with smooth and seamless living in which we don't have to struggle with anything at all. The result, Schneider says, is that high-tech is great at fulfilling our material needs and terrible at addressing our existential ones. Kirk Schneider is our guest in this Philosophical Center podcast discussing how we embrace our technology while retaining our humanity. Kirk Schneider, you've written that what makes us human is our experience of paradox. Could could you tell us more about that? Yeah, uh, my deep sense is that Perhaps at, at the core, what distinguishes us most from perhaps uh, other other animals, uh, but I would certainly say AI and robotic technology, as far as we've gotten anyway, is that we we experience life in uh, very uh, contrasting and, and even contradictory ways. I think this was one of the great discoveries of Freud, actually. It wasn't so much his his metapsychology around the conflict between sexual aggressive instincts and uh, our, our moral rules and uh, forms of repression, uh, but I, I think what what he really unveiled, what was so important, was that he he kind of exploded our our vanity. <laughs> he he exposed the very real notion that humans experience very mixed reactions, mixed feelings about so much of our lives, and it, there's very, very little that's pure and that's regulated in a, in a simple and linear way. Mm. For example, I, I may be, you know, I'm very excited about, uh, let's say, talking to you about this subject, which is a euphoric feeling, right? It's kind of a high. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have some uh, trepidation or some anxiety or, or some insecurity about talking to you because I'm, I'm risking myself. I'm being vulnerable. And yet, this is the stuff of life. I mean, anything that we invest in with passion, whether you know whether it's this call, whether it's a friendship, a love relationship, artistic project, or maybe uh, some kind of business endeavor, uh, we we often uh, have many layers of feelings about it, feelings and thoughts, and that's part of what what gives those investments intensity and and life. Otherwise, you know, we'd we'd either be 
kind of passive lumps of clay, indifferent, going going through motions, or, or we'd experience everything as uh, a high, which probably would make nothing very high mm-hmm. <laughs> after a while. Right. And this notion of, of paradox, which in, which involves contradiction, um, seems to, to speak to a whole different approach to, well, I mean, you've, you've written about this explicitly, to, to how we live our lives and how we think of ourselves as human beings and what it means to be a healthy human being. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, in our native state, we, we are both uh, small and fragile and, and vulnerable uh, before the vastness of creation and, and powers way beyond us. We're, we're helpless. We're helpless creatures in many ways. We can't do m- much at all about uh, forces beyond us. But at the same time, we, we also have a great capacity to transcend, to be bold, to take risks, you know, to venture out, to imagine, create. So we ha- we're, we're in this crazy condition, as Ernest Becker, the great uh, cultural anthropologist who wrote Denial of Death, put it. We're, we're in a crazy condition where, we're, in a sense, we're gods who shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, how do, how do you deal with, with these very contrasting and, and seemingly contradictory qualities? And yet, this, this, is, this is our lives. And yes, I, I believe that the healthier position within that paradoxical nature is capacity to experience the, the ranges of these paradoxes, to be able to experience our vulnerability and smallness and humility, which can certainly open us to discovery and to greater knowledge, uh, expanded consciousness, but, but also capacity to you know, move into that expanded consciousness mm-hmm. that greater knowledge and, and to apply it to, to improving our lives. Uh, it's, it's the capacity to tap into the fuller ranges of our thoughts, feelings, sensations, uh, intuitions. And that means tapping into very contrasting and contradictory aspects of ourselves and then, and, and then creatively shaping a life out of right. that. Right. An interesting connection to this with artificial intelligence came up uh, in a conversation I had with uh, an AI researcher, Dr. Christoph Salja, who has suggested that the issue we're facing with AI, one of many, but one of the central issues, is that we try to program artificial intelligence to be static, to work with the world as it is now and make decisions that are based on the issues that we have now, when of course everything changes so much that this is a this is a sort of a futile gesture. It almost guarantees a catastrophic failure down the line. So we we need to try to program it to understand to understand and let's put that in quotation marks, but to, that situations are going to change and that a sort of dynamic robustness is needed. And this struck me as very similar to the points you make about what it is to be mentally healthy, that in fact, mental health is not a static state that you say, okay, it's optimized now, you've got it, don't change anything. But it's the ability to better engage with this paradox, with these dynamic processes to to change, to grow, to, to engage with the world. And the, yeah. there's, there seems a really interesting connection here. 
I think there is. Uh, I mean, I, I call that that healthier state or more vital state, the fluid center, hmm. uh, having this capacity to uh, both venture out, engage with possibility, expand, but also to to con- contract, to confine our thoughts, feelings, sensations, to have that that kind of elasticity seems to me to help us to uh, not only adapt to life's changes, but but to thrive because it optimizes the human capacity to, to live. I mean, if we, let's say if we, we're constantly fluid and we're anticipating changes or entertaining too many thoughts and impulses at once, we get overwhelmed. I mean, we could call this a manic state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too much. And it's, it's also not something that can really be deepened. Uh, it gives us a lot of breath, if you will. But uh, does it really give us depth? It, it prompts us to sort of flit about in, in a, a kind of superficial way, perhaps rather than a, a more thoughtful uh, and uh, focused way. And on the other hand, if we're too focused and, and kind of intellectualized and categorical about our, our lives, we lose the juice. We lose the elasticity to adjust, as you were implying before, to changes in our own lives or with others in the world around us. So we become too rigid. And... Uh, and, and so, yeah, this capacity to range within and, and without is one of the great human capacities, and, and it's it's not one we're very well trained to cultivate, unfortunately. Right. Well, and one of the uh, one of the central theses of your uh, your most recent book is precisely that the way we use our n- new technology and the, the new technological revolution tends to flatten those experiences out and even try to eliminate the the kind of paradoxes that 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 make us both human and healthy exactly yeah i mean i'm i'm really concerned about certain trends let's say in neuroscience that want to move toward a hyper-regulated and sanitized existence where we can let's say fine-tune so to speak our neurological functioning so that we're completely peaceable and composed and uh, tranquil and unruffled by life, perhaps even to the point of, of cutting out uh, the so-called dysphoric emotions. You know, what if, what if our sadness was... What if we had the capacity to take away our sadness? What if we had the capacity to take away frustration? Uh, if we have the capacity to take away our anger, our loneliness, perhaps even our, our envy, mm-hmm. do we have we really thought through the implications of, of these kinds of, of moves? Uh, I, I don't think we have. I don't think we realize the price that could well be paid by too much, as you say, flattening out and regimentation or regulation of our lives, even though, of course, there's some very positive things there. I'm not trying to paint this with a, a broad, a completely broad brush, but, but we don't look at the other side enough, the, the, the paradoxical side. 
Right. Well, and, and if we are indeed, you know, using the technology to remove the experience of, of paradox, then we are in fact becoming more like m- more machines ourselves, and and not not in a positive way necessarily, but in a, you know in in that that reductive sense. Well, this is what I call roboticism. I mean, that's uh, one of the the main concerns of my book is our move toward what I call roboticism, which is not only the increasing emulation of machine-like behavior or the machine model for living, which emphasizes speed, instant results, appearance and packaging, but it's, it's the prospect that we are actually becoming machines and that there are very strong human interests in having us become machines. This is what concerns me a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly people like Kurzweil have written about this in terms of the singularity, uh, the point at which the human and the mechanical will no longer be distinguishable. And we're, we're kind of moving in this direction in some areas of medicine, and I, I, I would claim that we're moving this way in terms of how we're, we're being manipulated by powerful corporate and uh, governmental forces. Mm-hmm. There's often a profit motive in dehumanization. Very definitely a profit motive. If you think about it, uh, I mean, this, this kind of emphasis on efficiency, the efficiency model for living, uh, fits right into our whole, whole socioeconomic model if it does not include a moral aspect. Right. That model is basically amoral, as I understand it. I mean, it's capitalism w- without any uh, social consciousness or with, what, let's say, little uh, attention to the, the intimate lives of people, intimate experiences of people, is, is a, a recipe for a takeover of robotics. Mm-hmm. You wrote, actually, that, that high-tech solutions tend not to fulfill existential needs, purpose, connection, awe for life, that, that those are precisely the things that we, we don't seem to be able to in any way improve our ability to grasp when we, when we turn to technology. Yeah, uh, it's a concern about the capacity to, to pause, uh, to be more present. I really see presence as uh, foundational to what might be called the, the, the core of human experience. And I don't say the, any of these things in absolute terms. I'm, I'm enough of a postmodernist to uh, shy away from you know, dogmatic declarations, but I, I'm talking more as somebody coming from a, a phenomenological view, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. What I've experienced in my own intimate life, uh, what I've seen of the intimate lives of others as a therapist, as, as a participant in the world, uh, but it seems to me one of the, our most valued qualities is the capacity to slow down at times, to uh, be more present, more attuned uh, to our here and now experience within ourselves and, and toward others, and that means many of the contrasts and contradictions that we experience that kind of uh, keep us on the edge of, of discovery, you know, rather than having some programmed path. 
Yeah, which which certainly could uh, well narrow our perception and flatten our experience. One of the things that has come up in these conversations I'm having with people is this idea, first uh, first expressly uh, stated by Sherry Turkle, that we need to practice being human, that we've, we've reached a point where in order to make our technology successfully work for us, we ha ourselves have to practice our humanity. And I'm, I'm wondering, what, would that, what do you think that would involve? How would we do that? Yeah, that's a great, a great question uh, and, and extremely relevant. Well, uh, certainly uh, the move toward uh, developing a capacity to be more mindful, uh, you know, a number of the, the meditative practices that uh, people have been adopting, I, I think those can be helpful, especially if they're not turned into technologies or means ends kinds of experiences like mm -hmm. if you meditate then you you know will make more money at work or you'll be more functional in a in a almost mechanistic way right in, in a relationship or at, a, at the job or what have you but i i think that we we need to bring things like great conversations you know exploring classic books and I don't mean this from a you know a chauvinistic Western standpoint. I mean books that really move us, and questions of why they move us, how they move us, and be in conversation with others about this. This could be a this is certainly a wonderful and I hope not diminishing aspect of childhood and of a parent-child relationship, where you know the parent really can sit sits down with the kid and explores what what does. Harry Potter bring up in your own life, or how, how does magic and imagination play out for you, or how do these characters, you know, maybe reflect what what you see in your everyday life? Same with with movies. Uh, we can use these these wonderful artistic stimulants uh, for exploring. Uh, I think whether it's hiking or immersing in, in the ocean or, or it's getting down and dirty in the mud, you know, in a, a ball game of some kind. I mean, all, all, these, all these things can help us to be in, in greater touch with, or as you say, practice, being more, more fully present, especially, again, if we're brought up to, to be able to pause, to have the capacity to be more, more present, more aware of, of, of our a life experience and a moment-to-moment -moment experience. So, so much really relates, I, I see it as relating to the major sectors of our lives. We, we need to bring this, what I would call, awe-based consciousness, mm -hmm. which comes out of fuller presence, sense of humility and wonder, or sense of adventure toward living, to our child-rearing, to our, more to our educational system, even to our work setting, uh, where Perhaps we could have time that's almost built in for employees to to discuss uh, the the meaning and the, the implication of their work uh, with each other, uh, with with their employers, uh, maybe in some way with their community. Mm -hmm. Time to really open up to what what am I doing here? What's this about? How is this playing a part in the the larger picture of life. 
certainly in the religious and spiritual settings, one of the things I propose in the book is that religious denominations open up to the secular world, have gatherings where people talk about their experience of awe from both religious and secular standpoints. So so that the engineer, let's say, can talk about his or her sense of awe and creating a, a bridge or uh, some wonderful new form of architecture. I mean, it's a chance for people to really bridge across worlds, uh, across religions, even uh, cultures, I think, by bringing people together in these ways. Why, why couldn't that be part of religious ceremony, uh, congregations in some way? And then again, governance. Uh, I, I have a whole thing now. I'm, I'm really focusing on this a lot because I, I think this is one of our biggest uh, challenges today uh, is the need to uh, be in dialogue with people, especially people, uh, people in power who are seen as radically other in some way. Uh, so, for example, I've been doing some workshops on what I call the experiential democracy dialogue, mm-hmm. which is helping people who are on very different sides of an issue. Uh, for example, uh, police officers and people in the community to get together in, in one-on-one contexts facilitated one-on-one context where they really meet each other more as whole human beings rather than as as categories or stereotypes. And I I have a a kind of a whole approach to that. But I mean, that's very much practicing getting, getting in touch with one's deeper capacity to experience oneself and others. And it does take practice because we have to break through the the mechanistic conditioning that we've gone through. I think that one-on-one dialogue is is so important. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that's important in groups, but I think we forget that that more intimate space, that sort of sacred space between two people, can can break down a lot of the barriers that we we take for granted in more more group settings. Mm. It's it's a lot easier to see somebody as a thing, or as a representing this class or this religion or this culture. When when you're thinking in 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 a, a group like way or through media images, uh, you know, in more more distant ways of thinking of people, rather than if you're sitting with them in an an intimate setting, you know, right there before you. Mm-hmm. I begin with uh, just giving the other, you know, some time to tell their story. First of all, about just what it was like for them to grow up, mm. and and without any interruption, you know, for for several several minutes, uh, and and the partner then feeding back what he or she heard, and then the original speaker having a chance to correct that partner about what they actually experienced mm-hmm. and then rotating. So that, that's just the beginning phase of finding out, you know, where do these people come from, first of all? It's filling out dimensionality. It's recognizing the more 
mm-hmm. of who a person is. And, and, that's, and that's the very problem we have is we, we with with the computerized is I, I think we, we lose touch with the more. We get mm-hmm. algorithms and averages and aggregates, but we don't really get the the details. And it, and it and it occurs to me that if you're you're really listening to someone uninterrupted and and paying genuine attention to someone who is living a life that you have not imagined, that you're much more likely to encounter more of life's paradox. That this this is likely to become much more apparent to you in that moment. Very definitely, very definitely, and and very likely to bring up your your own sense of, of paradox mm-hmm. is that is that part of what you're you're getting out there is that yeah it, yeah it, yeah become more aware of their own fragility let's say mm-hmm. even even with as much bravado as they experience or a certain cultural style that this other person brings brings up mm-hmm. parts of themselves that they've buried maybe mm-hmm and there's this sex me as being something very powerful and just the realization that life can be both this and that simultaneously exactly. yeah exactly and and right because, i mean just the notion of the culturally other is part of the paradox itself the culturally other is partly the culture is partly the other within one's own being mm. and and if right. we're not able to be in touch with that otherness then then we're i think we're we're losing we're often losing a sense of the richness of life and the possibility of life mm-hmm. and creativity. You've been listening to a conversation with leading existential psychologist Kirk Schneider, author of The Spirituality of Awe, Challenges to the Robotic Revolution. This has been a podcast of the Burning Man Philosophical Center. The Philosophical Center is a Larry Harvey production with casting by Stuart Mangrum. Production assistance provided by Jay Knizzle and theme music by Ariel Cruz. I'm Caveat. Our motto is, belief is thought at rest. Until next time, remember to practice being paradoxical. It makes reality more interesting and you more human.